Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, we should have some out for you. If you find one around the room somewhere, it should be on page 793 in the church Bibles. And my voice is is a little off today, so bear with me if I have to cough quite a bit into this microphone. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. I'm going to begin this morning actually by reading you, and this will take five minutes, but bear with me. I'm going to read you a piece of history that has often been forgotten about the city of Athens. And if you have the time, I I encourage you to pick up a book by a man named Don Richardson. The book is called Eternity in Their Hearts. Much of what I'm about to tell you comes from his book and from the research that that I've gathered that supports what he says. Sometime about 600 years before Paul stepped into Athens, there was a meeting of the Areopagus in Athens. A group of men were very confused and they were anxiously awaiting some news from their friend Nicias. And Nicias arrived and the council said to him, Nicias, what advice has the Pythian oracle sent with you? Why has this plague come upon us? And why did our numerous sacrifices avail nothing? And Nicias said, the priestess declares that our city lies under a terrible curse. A certain God has placed this curse upon us because of King Megacles' grievous crime of treachery against the followers of Cylon. Oh, that's right. I remember now, Megacles obtained the surrender of Cylon's followers with a promise of amnesty and pardon. And then he promptly violated his own word and slew them. But which God still holds this against us? We've made atoning sacrifices to all of them. And Nicias said, no, not so. The priestess assures me that there is still another God who remains unappeased. She doesn't know who this God is, but she said that we must send immediately for a man from the island of Crete named Epimenides. She said that he will know how to appease this God, and so they sent for him at once, and Epimenides arrived in Athens with Nicias, and he looked around, and he said, oh my word, what, never have I seen so many gods. How many gods does Athens have? And Nicias replied, well, several hundred at least. To which Epimenides said, several hundred indeed. And Nicias went on and he said, but here's the thing. Apparently we need one more. The Pythian oracle says that that there's some God out there that we haven't accounted for and he's still pretty upset with us. And I, I can't figure out for the life of me who it could be. I mean, look around. We Athenians are obviously the world's foremost collector of gods. And Epimenides paused for just a moment and he said, have you... Have you ever considered, Nicias, that maybe that is your problem? That maybe that is what offends this God more than anything else? And he said, take me to the others. And as Epimenides appeared before the council at the Areopagus, he said, learned men of Athens, tomorrow at sunrise, here's what I want you to do. Bring a flock of sheep, a band of stonemasons, and a large supply of stones and mortar. And whatever you do, make sure that the sheep are extremely hungry. They must not be allowed to graze after their night's rest. That's all for now. Call me at dawn. And once everything had been arranged according to Epimenides' instructions, 
They called for him. They summoned him. He came and he spoke to them one more time. And he said, now learned men, you have already, you have already offered sacrifices to your numerous gods, yet to no avail. I am now about to offer sacrifices based on three assumptions that are rather different from yours. Number one, there is still another God concerned in the matter of this plague. A God whose name is unknown to us and who is therefore not represented by any idol in your city. Number two, this God is great enough and good enough to do something about this plague. And finally, number three, this God is willing to overlook our ignorance of him if we acknowledge our ignorance and call upon him for his help. And then he said, now release the sheep on this hill and have a man follow each one. If one of the hungry sheep lies down on the grass without eating, it will be by the power of this mysterious unknown God. Make the precise spot where that sheep lies down. Mark it. Build an altar there and sacrifice the sheep on that altar. Doing so will appease him. And a number of hungry sheep lay down that morning without eating. This is a true story. At each place, they, they built an altar to the unknown God. And very shortly afterward, the plague stopped. Now fast forward about 600 years and look down at your Bibles. <clears throat> Pardon me. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was in Athens... Waiting for them, that is Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, which as a campus minister I can appreciate. That sounds just like a college campus, and as a pastor I can appreciate that because it sounds just like one of our church gatherings. People come to hear something new. You're going to get something old today. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along... And observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Just as a side, let me insert this where he uses the phrase unknown God in the Greek that is agnostos theos. That's, that's agnostics. You ever heard anybody who calls himself or herself an agnostic? Well, that's, this is what we're talking about. You want to know how to minister to agnostics? Then let's keep listening. Verse 24, he's about to proclaim this unknown God to them. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself 
gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, here's the title of my message, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray and then I'll tell you what I want to do with the rest of our time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I I believe the plain declaration of your word, the plain explanation of your words is powerful by the Holy Spirit to transform hearts, not just to inform the mind, but to transform the soul to your glory. And I just pray and I ask that you would do that now. Be pleased to use simple people like me and simple people like us to change things here, to change things around us. We ask that you would change things in us, and we ask this by your power. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. I want to do two very simple things. Really, I could say one simple thing, which is to answer two very simple questions. And here those two questions are. Number one, how should you and I go about presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to those of our friends, relatives, co-workers, neighbors, who start in a different place than the Christian does, who, who start without a belief that the words of the Bible are true and relevant to them. Where do we begin as we seek to present the gospel to them? And number two, the other question I want us to answer today is, what can we expect as we do so? All right, so we're going to learn some things from this passage here in Acts chapter 17. Keep your Bibles handy, you will need them. Open them up. Keep looking at them. If you don't have one, look at the screen. If it's not up on the screen, look down and fake it. All right? I'm going to start with that second question first. What can you and I expect as we proclaim the gospel to those in our lives who, don't, who really don't believe that the Bible is true or relevant? Let me start at the end of the passage. Look at verse 32. It says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius and Damaris. And so here's here's what we can expect. The first thing we can expect is a broad range of responses to our message. Some mocked, we can expect that. Some said, you know, I'm not ready to make a decision on that right now which, by the way, is a decision, but that's what you'll hear, and they'll say, but I'd like to hear you some more on this, and some will believe. 
And we can't control the results. So here's, here's what I want you to do. This is what I do. Pray. Pray. Just ask the Lord. And, and put the scripture in your prayer. God loves to hear his own word. You know like how people love to see their name in the paper? They love to hear about themselves. Look, God loves to hear his word. And you pray to him. It's not, we're not manipulating him. We can't control results. But pray and say, Lord, would you please cause so-and-so to believe the way that Dionysius and Damaris did. And then leave it in his hands. The second thing that you and I can expect as we go out and we proclaim the gospel to people, we'll find at the beginning of the passage. Go back to verse 16. We can expect to be insulted from time to time. Let's, let's read through again from the top. Paul was in Athens waiting for his friends and his spirit was provoked in verse 16. Now that word provoked is something that means it, it significantly increased in temperature. You could say that Paul had reached a boiling point and now he had to speak. He had to do something about it as he looked out at the idolatry around him. And so in verse 17, according to his custom, he went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews and the devout persons there. But then we see Paul here in Athens going also into the marketplace, one of those places where you're not supposed to take Christianity. Like our public schools and where you work and you know what I mean? You're not supposed to break that unwritten rule of the culture that Christianity is a private thing. But Paul breaks that rule. He goes into the marketplace and he begins to speak about Jesus and the resurrection. And we know that from verse 18 because it tells us that he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So that was the content of his message. And I want to point out very quickly, it's not in my notes, but it's worth saying. Notice Paul doesn't change the content of his message just because he's speaking to people who don't believe in the truth of the Bible. He's still preaching Christ. He's still proclaiming in Christ the resurrection of the dead. And that, that never changes. We talked about that last week. But what you do see him doing now is he goes into the marketplace and he meets, he meets some, very, some very famous at that time and some very smart people, some philosophers. Look at verse 17. Or 18, rather. He was reasoning with those who happened to be there, and some of them were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about who they are, but I will mention something about what they believed concerning the afterlife. The Epicureans believed in annihilation. So death was the end. There was nothing after that. There are people, you know people, there are probably people here this morning who believe this. There's certainly people in your life that you know who believe this. Once you die, that's it. No reincarnation, no resurrection, just annihilation. All right? And then the Stoics, the Stoics believed that the human soul actually did continue after death, but that it was reabsorbed into this, this primal fire that started everything in the world. This, and this fire is what they refer to as God. They actually used the word logos to refer to this fire. In fact, if you read the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, You can make a good case that John is writing that gospel specifically to reach someone who was a Stoic, which makes a whole lot of sense. If you study church history, you you know that Justin Martyr in the second century was the primary witness of Christ to the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic, and Justin often came from the gospel of John. So I just want you to learn history, realize that real history intersects with the, the story of the Bible. It's, it's not, they're not separate, but in any case, let's, let's go on. So here's, we can expect to be insulted. We see Paul being insulted in verse 18. Look, look at it with me. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with Paul, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said he seems to be preaching foreign divinities. Now, that word babbler is a very interesting word. It literally means something like a seed picker. It's, it's actually referring to what a bird does when it's trying to, you know, get its lunch. It takes a seed from here, a seed from there, a morsel of food from there. It rummages through the garbage and, and just comes up with something that it calls lunch. And what these philosophers are saying about Paul is that this guy obviously has just a bunch of disconnected ideas from this person and that person. No comprehensive view of the world. Uh, no... no no, no real unified system of thought to set beside those of the philosophers. Certainly nothing to say about how to establish a culture and a society in its ethics, its, its aesthetics, its government, its all those things. He, nothing to say, nothing to contribute. Certainly not ready for the big league of Athens. No, those underdeveloped superstitious ideas are better tried on people who are far less intelligent. See, Athens was the intellectual center of the world at that time. This is like stepping onto the campuses of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford, Cambridge, and telling people about Jesus and the resurrection. And even more so, these were considered to be the greatest thinkers in the world at this time. Paul was the only Christian before them, speaking to the greatest thinkers in the world at that day. I heard one guy talking about this and he said, we're probably not in any real danger of reproducing that scenario this morning. I'll let you guys figure that out. But here Paul is. What's he going to do? How's he going to respond to these insults? Well, if we look at this, it's, it's really important for us to realize that this still happens, doesn't it? I mean, how do people respond to your message about Jesus and the resurrection today? Doesn't this still happen? Don't people respond to the resurrection of Christ and the preaching of it as something that's just far beneath their intellect? Isn't Jesus kind of rejected as a foreign divinity? That may be true for you and good for you, but it's certainly not relevant for me. It's a foreign divinity as far as my life is concerned. We've got to be able to press past the insults of others because they will come. If it's not happened to you yet, speak up and see what happens. I guarantee you, you'll you'll discover that the insults are there waiting for you just as they were waiting for Christ and for Paul. So those are the two things that we can expect from this passage. We, we can expect that people will respond in a, a number of different ways and we can expect that we'll be insulted. Now let's go back to our first question. How do we actually go about now sharing the gospel with those in our lives who don't start from the place where the Bible is seen as true and relevant? I just want to learn from Paul here. Let's follow him starting in verse 22 as he goes into the Areopagus. Look with me at verse 22. The first thing that you see Paul doing here, and if time permits, I'll mention four of these things. But the first thing you see Paul doing is he finds an open door for his message. Let's read verse 22 together. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed your objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That altar was all Paul needed 
It was his way in. It was the door of entry for his message. And look how he found it. Look closely at verse 23. How will you and I find an open door for the gospel? Look at what Paul did. He said, as I passed along and observed your objects of worship, I found something. He found his door, his open door for the gospel. What will it mean and what will it look like for you and I to pass alongside people, to walk with people, to discover who they are, to discover where they've come from, to learn their story, to know what makes them tick, to find their objects of worship, what it is that captures their heart the most. That's what we're talking about when we say objects of worship. Not necessarily things that fall into the category of my culture calls this religious, but objects of worship. What captures someone's heart more than anything else? Pass along. Discover those things. Find those things. And then ask them about that. Say, I notice you talk about this or about this person more than anything else. Why have they captured your heart so much? And let them talk and listen. And maybe they'll look back at you one day if they're not so self-absorbed and they'll say, well, what captures your heart more than anything else? And there you go. Please don't tell them about your favorite football team at that point or you know what if that's what it is go ahead and be honest about it but, but hopefully Jesus is somewhere in your, in your heart hopefully he's number one find an open door for the gospel message a lot of times it's as simple as taking the time to listen and to observe people's lives listen, here, let me give you something practical to do try this just look at one of your friends one of these days and this is not just a, a gimmick or a technique but really ask them this question I've really found this to be helpful in my own life ask them tell me something what do you believe about God today and how does that compare to what you believed when you were younger people love talking about that stuff And it's often an open door for the gospel. So Paul found an open door for his gospel message. The second thing that we see him doing in this passage is right here in verse 24. He corrected their false ideas about God. You'll see that in verses 24 to 29. Now this this is hard. This is hard because a lot of times we don't want to confront people. It's much easier not to say anything. And sometimes it's probably wise not to just jump in there with every bit of confrontation that we can muster up. But... For those of you who like to shy away from confrontation, here's what what I would say to you. At some point, you've got to get to the place where you're able to swallow and say, you know what, actually, I believe something different. You've got to come out of the closet with this Jesus thing. People's souls depend upon this to some degree. You've got to come out of the closet. For those of you who are like me and you love confrontation, You wake up thinking about how you can preach this gospel to somebody and how you can maybe find some atheist or agnostic out there and you're like me, then you're probably going to be on that side where you have to hear, you know, kind of rein it in a little bit and just listen a little bit more. All right, but you know where you are. Your friends know where you are. If you can't figure it out, listen to your friends. They're probably right. My friends have convinced me that I'm one that needs to be reined in a little bit. And they're right. But wherever you are, the point is we want to help people hear about Jesus and come to faith in him. So Paul, Paul did that. You notice that he corrected some of their false ideas about God. Let's take a look at what some of them were in verse 24. Paul says, The God who made the world 
and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. One of the strangest things about these Athenians, and tell me if this sounds familiar. Everyone look at me. They thought that God lived in buildings that people like us make. What a strange thing to believe about God. Paul says, what are you, what are you talking about? He made the world. He made everything in it. How are you going to build him a house? It's silly, right? Yet, Mr. DeRocco, how do we speak? Oh, look, it's Sunday. Let's go to God's house. Have you built him a house in Richmond? Does he neatly fit into it? Somehow these people had managed to domesticate God. They put him under house arrest. They, they put him in timeout like I do with Brianna. I put her, put her on the couch and she can't move. Let's go visit God. This is where he lives. We have his address. By the way, did you mail that letter to him last week? No, God does not live in temples made by human hands. What a, what a strange thing to believe. We do the same thing though, don't we? There's this, there's this practice of setting boundaries for God. Lord, you can speak into my life up to this point, but here's your boundary. We're talking about my career here. You can't go past this. Look, this is, this is the boundary I've set for you. I've determined the boundaries of your dwelling. Don't we flip the script on God? No, 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 this is my relationship with a, a, a person I'm very interested in. You can, you can, you can speak up to this point, but, but I've, I've got this one. Please don't cross that boundary and misbehave. No, whoever, whoever it is we're thinking about or talking about when we live that way and speak that way, it can't be the God who created all things. It, it just can't be. So... Let's be done with our ignorance of God. God is God. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. You give Him your life, or you come to the realization that He's not willing to make some treaty with you and accept your boundaries. It's not like those old cartoons with Elmer Fudd and and those guys where you, you draw a line and say, I dare you to cross that. Don't play that game with God. He made you. Paul had to correct the Athenians. The Bible still has to correct us. Not only did they believe that God could live in houses that they made, but look at verse 25. It says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. These people thought that God needed them. They they actually brought him food when they thought he was hungry and called it sacrifices. They, they had this whole theology that the gods needed their prayers in order to keep from growing weak. They needed their prayers to stay strong. How foolish, Paul said. How foolish of the Athenians. What were they thinking, right? Oh, if they could only be like us. We, we limit our ideas about God needing us to Him needing our approval. He needs us to approve of the way that He runs the world. He needs us to approve of the way that He dispenses the free gift of salvation. He needs us to approve of what He says. He needs us to to give Him some sort of confirmation that He's doing a good job. No, that isn't right either, is it? Look, Look closely at verse 25. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. Doesn't need your food, doesn't need your prayers, doesn't need your approval. 
God is self-sufficient. Paul had to correct the Athenians. The Bible still has to correct us today. But they had, they had more things that Paul needed to address. By the time he gets into verse 26, he says, you people have this business of multiplying gods. But there's only one God. Man can't multiply gods. It is God who multiplies men. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. And by the way, by the time we get to the end of this passage, this will be the very rational ground upon which God has the right to command all everywhere to repent. If he made everyone, he owns everyone. You make, you make something, you own it, correct? Any lawyers? All copyright law is based on this. You own whatever you create. God has a special ownership of your life whether you acknowledge him or not. A lot of people live as if this is not true. They think that somehow because they have opted to, to adhere or to, to follow a certain set of beliefs that deny these realities, that somehow it escapes. They escape the fact that God has an ownership over their lives. No, no, that's still the case. He made you. You didn't make yourself. You're clear about that. God is the one who made you. And because of that, God has an ownership of your life. And he has the right to command all people everywhere, without exception, to repent. And, and the Athenians obviously didn't know this. They were, they were very intelligent on the one hand, but Paul stands up and says, you're very ignorant on the other hand. You obviously don't know a thing about God, so everyone, you, you better listen. No, men don't multiply gods. God is the one who multiplies men in verse 26. And, and why did he multiply men? Why did he spread them out over, over all the face of the earth? Well, it, it tells us there at the end of verse 26 or rather in verse 27, he determined our allotted periods and our boundaries, not the other way around. And in verse 27, it gives us the reason for him doing that, so that people would seek God. Why do you live where you live? Why do you live where you live when you live there? Why does the person who is not yet a believer in Christ in your family, in your life, on your team, at your job? Why do they live right next to you? Well, the answer is verse 27, that they should seek God and feel their way toward Him and perhaps find Him. This is why God determines our boundaries. This is why he puts us in Richmond in the year 2011, that people might seek God, feel their way toward him, and find him. And then, of course, you can see here in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. They thought that, that God was something that was made an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Any artist, you make a lot of things. God is not one of them. This is a very important point. The people thought that they could make gods of wood. They could take something that he had made that they found in his world and they could shape it and then call it God. One man said that God made man in his image and now men have returned the favor. We've made God in our image. This is not how this works, Paul says. 
You ought not to think that God is like wood or stone or anything else that you can find in his world. You ought not to think that God is just, in one sense, like us. Yes, we're made in his image, but you can't work backward and say that's what God is like. You can't take away that we demonstrate love one to another and say that's how God demonstrates love. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. You've got to start with God. All proper thinking starts with looking to God and then work toward man. Don't try to figure out how people get saved by looking at people and then trying to figure out what God did. It doesn't work that way. Read your Bible, see what it says about what God did, and then try to figure out what we do. And it will solve a million problems for you. It will end a million arguments. And if you're curious, that's all I'm going to say about that this morning. Because it's just not really in the text and I don't want to get too far away from it. The Lord has set boundaries for me as a preacher with the text. So here it is. We see Paul correcting their false beliefs. We see him doing this. And this is the pattern. This is what we want to do for people as well. We, we understand that as we're going through and we're encountering people who consider themselves agnostics or who are just largely ignorant of the one true God and what the Bible says about him, we want to make sure that we find an open door for our message. In addition to that, we want to make sure that we, we take the time to correct people's false ideas about God. And then, thirdly, you see what Paul does here. He actually finds truth in what they believe. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, Paul says, In him we live and move and have our being. Do you know who he quotes there? Epimenides. He doesn't really start with a Bible verse. Because these people don't accept the Bible. They don't even know about the Bible probably. He starts with Epimenides and he finds a piece of truth in what they already believe. And he grabs onto it and he uses it. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. And here's what would have happened to his hearers. They would have said, yes, that's true. We recognize that. You can always work from any truth about God and take people to the cross of Jesus Christ. There's always a way. Just find that truth. Have them agree with something that you've just said about God. And what you've just done is you've established some credibility with them. They, they're with you. You're both together there. And you're walking now toward the cross of Jesus Christ. You take him by the hand and you say, well, you, you do what Paul did here. He, he found some truth. He goes on and he said, as even some of your own poets have said. Look at verse 20, 28 there. As even some of your own poets have said. And he quotes a guy named Aratus and his work, Phenomena. And he, he says, look, we are indeed his offspring. And then he reasons with them from what they already know to be true about God. He finds that truth and says, now, 29, verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think as you are currently thinking. He says, you know better. You're God's offspring. How can you, how can you say he's like stone or wood? No, we came from him. He doesn't come from us. How can you think that way? And immediately what they're saying is, yes, that's right. We already believe certain things that should have ruled out the way that we're thinking about God. And the same will happen as you speak to other people and you show them these realities and you dig into what they already believe and you, you, you speak to them on that level and they'll listen. They really will listen. They really will listen. 
And remember, the Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit is at work on this individual. So, so we, want, we want to find an open door for our message. We want to correct people's false ideas about God. And we want to find truth within their beliefs and then use that truth to help take them to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the last thing I want to mention that Paul does is he, he confronts them with verse 30 and 31. He actually says, you must repent. He actually gets to this place with them. Now, this is important. You may not get there in one conversation. It may take years But hopefully, hopefully you love the people in your life enough to warn them the way that Paul warns the Athenians here. Uh, Look at verse 30. Paul Paul says the times of ignorance, what, what a blow this must have been to the most intelligent minds on the planet at this time. Your heyday about 300 years ago in the height of Greek glory is part of what we call the times of ignorance. The times of ignorance are over. Look, everyone, look at me really quick. There are no excuses anymore. God has sent Jesus into the world. The times of ignorance are over. We often theorize about people in other parts of the world who are still informationally BC. They haven't heard this message. What about this? What about that? Look, a dramatic shift in world history has taken place with the coming of Christ. With his life, his death, his resurrection, we have moved from the times of ignorance of the Gentiles to the days of repentance. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance are over. He overlooked them, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All people everywhere. Let me ask you a question. Whom does that leave out? Who does that leave out? Ask me your question again about the person in some remote part of the world that hasn't heard. I don't know very much about that person, but there is one thing I do know. God commands that person to repent. Because I'm pretty sure that that person is included in the phrase, all people everywhere. This is God's command for God's world and all the people that God has made. It's a command. And we often hide it from people. We want them to join our church. We want them to think well of cool Christians like us. We're not concerned with faithfulness to Christ. We're concerned with what people think about us. Now, by all means, be sensitive. Be considerate of where people are. Get to know what they've been through. See what their struggles might be with God. Talk to them on that level. But at some point, at some point, we have to call a spade a spade, and we have to acknowledge that at times we're just guilty of cowardice. We love ourselves more than God. We're afraid to speak up about Jesus. We're afraid to tell people they have to repent because we know how they'll respond. And we're, we're living in a sense like that person is our God and we need their approval. Paul doesn't do that. Paul says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere, including you, to repent. 
None of us will escape this. And why should we repent? Why does God command all people everywhere to repent? The answer is verse 31. Because. See that word because? That's where God gives you a reason for what he just said. God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Some of you engage in this business of evangelism. Let me say something to you very quickly. Depending on which circles of Christianity you run in, you will hear people telling you that you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't use scare tactics when you're telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. You want them to be motivated by grace when they come. So Paul isn't motivated by grace here? Being motivated by grace and led by the Holy Spirit leaves out the most important warning about the most terrible danger that human beings can face? The Bible in verse 31 presents the reality of judgment as a legitimate motive for repentance. I listen to people all the time who say you ought to leave that out of your repertoire. This is why you have to develop your theology from the scriptures and not from what you hear on podcasts. No, no, let's, let's go all the way and be done with the opinions of men, whether from Athens or from Richmond or wherever else you listen to people. I don't know where they are. All I know about them is God commands them to repent, just like he commands me to repent, just like he commands you to repent, and your friend in the most remote, remote part of the world. Verse 31, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world, and it will be a righteous judgment. He won't get anyone's case wrong. We worry about that down here. No one in, in heaven is concerned about God getting it wrong. And this judgment is coming. God has fixed a day. I make appointments with some of you. I'm going to meet a guy at 12 o'clock Tuesday afternoon. We've fixed a day and a time on which we will meet. I'm, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to go and meet that person. My word is important to me. You don't think God's word is important to him? You think this appointment will escape God? No, he's coming. And the one who will carry out this judgment is none other than the one you see spoken of in verse 31. God has given proof of this. This man whom he has appointed, God has given proof or assurance of this to all. People have enough proof because God gave it to them. He gave them assurance by raising Jesus from the dead. When, Christ raised Christ, when, when, G, when God raised Christ from the dead, he gave assurance to all that he is going to keep this promise to judge the world in righteousness. It will happen. Look at me. Look at me square in the eye. It will happen. You will not escape. I will not escape. There is only one way to survive. You ignore this warning at your own peril. Let me close. I'm going to close now with a story that was, this is a real story now. 
Many of you will recognize it. But it was told by a Japanese pastor to his congregation, I believe in New Jersey. It's interesting what God's done with the world. The Japanese pastor in New Jersey. But here's what he read. I'm going to read it to you and I want you to pay very close attention to this. God has fixed a day. One day in 1945, a formation of planes appeared in the skies of Hiroshima, Japan. These U.S. Air Force planes dropped countless slips of paper which contained the following warning. We warn the people of Hiroshima. Everyone evacuate and stay beyond the 20-kilometer radius of Hiroshima before 10 o'clock a.m. of August the 6th. August the 6th, 1945. The sky was literally covered with leaflets saying that the atomic bomb will be dropped. However, the people of Hiroshima took the warning lightly, saying this is only a threat, it's a lie. We'll see when it happens. Only a small number of people took the warning seriously. They packed what they could and they hurriedly fled with their families to safety. Finally, the day arrived. On the morning of August 6, 1945, people were curious as to what would happen looking up into the sky when all of a sudden one plane appeared above Hiroshima at 10.15 in the morning and dropped a black object. A short while later, a black cloud of death and destruction filled the entire city. More than 200,000 people died because they did not take that warning seriously. The U.S. Air Force fixed a day. God has fixed a day. How certain are you that this is an idle threat? What are the consequences if you're wrong? You notice in this passage there's not very much good news that Paul offers the people, is there? Here's the good news this morning. God warns us of the coming judgment not as someone eagerly waiting to punish us, but as a loving father. It's a sort of warning that I give Brianna. I call her name a lot. But it's a, sort, it's a sort of warning I give my two-year-old daughter, Brianna, when we park the minivan in a parking lot somewhere. She jumps out, starts to run toward traffic, and I say, Brianna, stop. Turn around. Come here to daddy. Repent. Turn around. That's what that word repent means. Turn around. There's an imminent and oncoming danger. Come back to daddy. This is what God is saying. He's fixed a day. There is a real and imminent danger. Turn around. Repent. 
Don't take him for a fool. Don't take his word as a joke. Don't listen to your friends or anyone else who's telling you that this is an idle threat. Flee. Like the few in Hiroshima, flee to the cross of Jesus Christ where the Savior of the world died for sins so that those sins being fully punished in His death might never be brought up again against those who put their trust in Him. This is the good news. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Come to Christ today or face the very real possibility of perishing tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, what I've just said this morning is very weighty. It's very heavy. It's very serious. And I don't want to take one thing away from the the seriousness of it. I don't want to say anything light. I don't want to try to make light of it. It's the most serious thing that I think has ever been spoken to mankind. Our eternal souls are capable of perishing apart from Christ. We face a very real danger. And now I ask that you would do what only you can do. Let those who hear this this morning, whether in this room or somewhere over their computers, be like Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris. Let them believe. Open their heart. Let them believe. Let them turn and find life in Jesus Christ. Amen.